I try and have a target audience in mind. I say, okay, who do I want to be reading this, and what do I want them to take away from it? This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Today we're revisiting a remastered and remixed version of our very first episode, in which we talked with Ryan Kelly of the University of Washington School of Marine and Environmental Affairs. Though he's a marine scientist, for the paper we focused on, he and his colleagues wanted to take their research in a different direction than is typical in marine science. Namely, what gets research noticed? Here's Ryan Kelly. Hey, my name is Ryan Kelly. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington, and I was a biology major uh, all the way through. You know, I was one of those people where I always wanted to be a marine biologist, and I became a marine biologist, um, which is always fun at cocktail parties. You know, you say, oh, I'm a marine biologist, and whoever you're talking to always says, oh, I wanted to be a marine biologist uh, when I was 10. <laughs> so maybe I'm one of those people that, that never quite grew up. Ryan's core science is on the interplay between geography, ecology, and genetics in marine species, whereas his applied research joins marine biology to real-world implementation in law and policy, particularly with respect to environmental monitoring, endangered species, and ocean acidification. Doug and I were curious about the influence of his core marine biology on his applied research and vice versa. So I have a job where I get to do work on two totally different sides of the spectrum uh, in terms of basic science and then applied science and how we make rules as a society about how we use the information we develop. So that to me, that's a real treat and a real privilege. And it also allows me to design my science, my bench science, based upon questions in the real world uh, and how I think those maybe could or should be answered. Uh, and vice versa, you know, thinking about how do we do legal research, how do we design policy that is more responsive to underlying data. So for most people, that's a, that's a handoff of information where they work on one of those bits and hand it off to somebody else. And for me, I try and avoid that handoff and I, I try and integrate those two worlds. And, you know, the environmental policy people have a, have a saying that uh, environmental management is people management. Uh, and, and for me, you know, starting as a biologist and then going to law school, inevitably you, you run into these issues where, uh, it, you know, maybe the pure, pure scientist says, well, I just want to be left alone in my, in my lab with my beakers and my, you know, in my case, I was doing chitin genetics. And most people have never heard of a chitin. Uh, so how do you think about the broader impacts of that? Uh, that can be very challenging. Uh, but then you start thinking, well, okay, if I care about this organism or this ecosystem, I care about the things that influence it. And humans inevitably influence it. And similarly, when you start thinking along those lines, you have to ask yourself, well, okay, what makes humans work? Uh, how do humans make decisions? How do people relate? To, how do you convince somebody of something? Evidence from psychology and literary theory suggests that audiences better understand and remember narrative writing as compared to expository writing. And at the time of our initial interview, Ryan's most recent article focused on the application of this principle to research articles on climate change. So we asked him, what was it that caught his attention about the writing style of articles he was reading at the time? I ended up reading this book. It's a popular book called Influence by Robert Cialdini, who is a professor at Arizona State. He calls it, the, the subtitles, The Psychology of Persuasion. Uh, and so I, I became interested in that as a just as a piece of work, as a popular piece of work. And in that book, I, I ran across the idea that you could quantify 
narrativity. You could quantify how narrative a piece of writing was. So it wasn't that I had noticed that articles I cited were written in a more narrative way. It was that I, I came at it from first principles of saying, well, if people learn by narrative and people best communicate and best remember information when it's told in the form of a story, I wonder if that concept from psychology and, and from literature and, and communications, if that concept applies even in the very dry <laughs> world of scientific writing. Uh, and, and we were surprised to learn that it did. So that was, that was really cool. With the research question now in mind, Brian and his graduate student, Annie Hillier, had to design a study that would help shed light on the possibly influential role of writing style on the value attributed to the article in the scientific community. We'll hear what Ryan had to say about moving from the conceptual question to a research design after this short break. This episode of Parsing Science is brought to you by Figshare, a free-to-use cloud-based platform for storing and sharing your research outputs. Upload your tabular data, images, 3D scans, videos, and more to Figshare to get credit for all your research. And if you're a fan of podcasts, check out Figshare's podcast, School of Batman, where we ask academics to use their research to help Batman fight crime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Parsing Science. Here again is Ryan Kelly. We ran into the problem where how do you measure, well, how do you measure influence, for example, of a of a scientific paper or of anything. Uh, and so at least with the scientific literature and with, you know, with academic literature, citations is, a, um, is the, maybe the way of measuring the influence of, of your work on the field. And so the number of times you get cited is a pretty direct measure of your influence on the field. So this was a particularly targeted question. It was, can we measure narrativity and does it predict citations? So we said, okay, well, how would we do this? How would we quantify what it means to be narrative? And so Annie went through uh, different literatures uh, that deal with narrativeness and narrativity. And she ran across a, a bunch of different strains of literature. When I say literature, I mean, you know, academic writing. Uh, that handled this idea of what it means to be narrative. And obviously, literary studies is one of those disciplines, right? They care about what makes a story, what makes narrative. But also psychology uh, has spent a long time thinking about, well, how do, how do people learn? And it turns out people learn by telling stories. And so these really different forms of academic writing weren't really speaking to each other, but Annie went through both of them and then pulled out common elements. And that's how we arrived at the, the, the six elements that we end up scoring as uh, sort of quantifiable bits of narrativity. Narrative writing is storytelling, often anecdotal, experiential, and personal storytelling. It allows writers to express themselves in creative and often quite impactful ways. Since this isn't how we typically characterize traditional academic or scientific writing, we were interested in how Ryan and his colleagues describe narrative writing within the context of their study. Inevitably, a narrative, a story, has to have some sort of arc. Uh, and so generally that involves first creating a setting. Um, it, it could be a setting within one sentence. You know, It could be, I went to the beach. Uh, that is an evocative sentence because all of a sudden it's got a person in it, right? It's got me and it's got some action. So setting is one of those uh, not required elements for, uh, for a narrative, but is you know, one of the very common elements. 
Uh, and then so similarly, narrative perspective. Generally, a narrative is going to be either in, well, it could be the first, second or third person. Uh, but, you know, for our case, we were interested in first versus third because scientific literature, which is what we were measuring, is never written in the second person. So for us, it was uh, first or third person. Uh, so I versus he, she or it. And then sensory language is going to be language that evokes some sort of physical sensation. Like I felt the sand uh, at, when I went to the beach, right? That's an example that makes narrative real for people. It sort of fills in those details. Conjunctions are just like uh, schoolhouse rock, conjunction, junction. Um, it's going to be uh, words that link uh, phrases together, like um, however, moreover. Connectivity is a little bit different because it has to do with cause and effect. Uh, and so that when you have a narrative, you have a, a series of events that are linked together causally. It's not just a set of random happenings. The, what makes a story is that they're connected. So connectivity is phrases or words that are linking one idea to the next, not in the grammatical sense that conjunctions are, but rather in the um, in the narrative sense, I guess, right? In the way that you're creating a, a cause and effect relationship. And then finally, appeal to the reader is something that scientists are very divided about. Uh, but in general, with the narrative, there's a moral to the story or there's some lesson to be learned. And the equivalent of that in scientific writing is, okay, so what? Like, what should I do uh, given your results? And so is there a direct appeal to the reader uh, is how we tried to capture that. So that was are six elements. Science can be defined as the systematic study, discovery, and creation of knowledge achieved through structured methods of observation and experimentation. The key to doing it well lies in thinking critically, having intellectual honesty, and applying methodological rigor when answering a question. This led Doug and I to ask Ryan just how comfortable he was applying his scientific methods to these questions of narrativity. I am a biologist and I am a lawyer. I am not a communications expert, right? And I neither am I a literary anything expert, right? So this is an example of scientists getting really right to the edge of our, our comfort zones and saying, how do we learn something new here and try and put something into the world that's analytical that comes at this question of, of what makes science writing effective. But, you know, we, we could have easily looked at that question and said, well, we're not communications professionals, so we're going to, we can't do that. Um, and maybe, you know, perhaps, and perhaps that's a totally reasonable uh, way to think about it, right? Uh, but it, it, instead, we, we said, well, we think that we could approach this with this mix of, well, deference, you know, given that communication is an entire field here at UW, we have an entire department of communications and, and most big universities do. Uh, and we're not in that department. And so how do we, you know, pay respect to the, the massive amount of knowledge that's out there on communications, but then say, okay, but we're coming at it from a different way. Now, with a plan for answering their research questions, Ryan and his colleagues next had to figure out how to obtain a large amount of data in order to detect any possible signal between writing style and citation count, and distinguish that effect from other possible factors, or noise, that might also influence a paper's citations. As Ryan explains next, their strategy relied on a number of online tools. They say the mother necessity is the mother invention, right? And that is surely true when you're working at the edges of 
of what you <laughs> where you know what you're doing the edge <laughs> the edges of the known world to you uh, so we we ran into this problem we said okay well we think we have some elements here that we could score scientific papers for well like do they have a setting or not and are they using first person or third person sure that all made sense and then we realized we we're going to need to do this a lot of times our, our statistical power analysis suggested we were going to need to do it hundreds or thousands of times depending on the strength of the signal that we were looking to pull out of the data and so I sort of floated this idea that okay well we could crowdsource it uh, so there are these online platforms like um, Crowdflower and Mechanical Turk just a quick note Crowdflower was sold in 2019 for 300 million dollars and is now called figure eight uh, I had never used them before. It may be something that people in the communications field use more of. I, actually, I think that's true for things like surveys and psychology. People tend to use this more often where you, where you need to get a lot of data from real humans. But you know, for us, this was a new experience. Uh, so we just, first of all, just used the abstracts of these scientific papers. We didn't use the whole paper because we couldn't ask people to read like a 30-page scientific paper and then give us six bits of information about it when they weren't specialists. Even you couldn't do that to specialists, right? That's just mean. So um, we so we had them read the abstract, which is just you know the short bit at the beginning of the paper. It's usually a few hundred words. It was bite sized. And it's also available in a database. And you pay people to do this, but you pay them not very much money because it doesn't take them very long. And they can read through it and score, okay, did it have a setting or not? Did it have a narrative perspective of first person or third person? And so forth. So we could have seven different people read the same abstract and score it for the same criteria. And that way we could, we could develop a distribution uh, of each of these, uh, these narrative elements for every one of our abstracts. So we said, okay, we probably should look within one discipline because you know it might be that chemistry and you know climate change science and ecology are written for totally different audiences in totally different journals, and maybe they play by different rules. So in order to minimize the noise there, we just looked at uh, papers that had climate change in the title or in the abstract, and that narrowed it down. And then also we looked at a particular stretch of years, uh, and so it was a few years ago uh, for a few year period. And so it was about uh, reducing the background noise to see if there really was a signal. Citing or documenting the sources used in research serves multiple important purposes, including that it gives proper credit to the authors of the words or ideas that are incorporated into the new article. And it allows those who are reading the article to locate the sources in order to learn more about the influential ideas. Nevertheless, using citations as a measure of influence presented some challenges, as Ryan describes next. So we thought, okay, great, we can measure citations, no problem. And we can download um, thousands of papers or thousands of abstracts of papers, at least, from publicly available databases, so no problem. But then in matching those up, it becomes a little bit of a challenge because the databases that have all the, the papers and the abstracts don't necessarily have counts of citations. So uh, we, we tried to use Google Scholar, but Google Scholar sort of overcounts citations often uh, or counts them in a, in a more generous way than other sources. And Google Scholar is not open to the public in terms of downloading all of its data. So we couldn't download a few thousand papers worth of citations because that's not how Google Scholar works. So I tried to do this in a bunch of different ways. Um, I found some Python code, and I, I'm not great with Python, and so I'm trying to 
play around with that. It wasn't terribly helpful uh, or it wasn't successful, I should say. Then I ended up writing some code to try and trick Google's API. So like to put a pause in between each of my queries, right? But Google is way smarter than I am. So that didn't work <laughs> pretty, pretty quickly didn't work. Uh, so I, I just never found a great workaround. So we ended up having to use a, a proprietary service web of science that we use through the University of Washington library. And you can download like 500 at a time. So we, we you know, we ran into these issues where we had to have workarounds to what I thought was going to be the, the easiest part of the project was you know, saying, well, how many times has each paper been cited? But that turned, turned out to be not trivial. Across a wide range of disciplines, audiences tend to understand and recall narratives far better than information that's received in other ways. And so the unpublished stories behind his research, as told by Ryan himself, was, for this very reason, the perfect first episode for Parsing Science. One of the great things about crowdsourcing, one of the things that I was sort of surprised by in a good way, was how quickly you can get data back. We were able to get thousands of responses within, like, 48 hours, you know, or within, within a very limited amount of time. So uh, you can actually see data as the data is coming in. And we found that narrativity did significantly correlate with citations, number of times that a paper was cited, but it wasn't like a huge signal. So it was, you know, it was surprising that we found any signal at all, uh, but it accounted for about 5% of the variance in citations. So what that means is, it means that you've got um, any number of reasons why some papers are highly cited and, and not highly cited. About 5% of that spread is explained by how narrative that paper is. So it's not that the entire signal of uh, whether you get cited or not is, do you begin your abstract of your paper with, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, you know, if that was a guaranteed way of getting uh, 100 or 500 citations, everybody would do it. Um, but it, it does, it, this does play a role. By coincidence, I had dinner last night with a friend who's a high school teacher. He teaches uh, language arts and literature, and he's trying to get ninth graders to you know analyze narrative structure and so forth and months ago when this paper came out when the narratives paper came out i mentioned it to him and so last night at dinner he says hey i put your narratives paper in my syllabus this is for you know ninth grade students who are like trying <laughs> trying to learn how to write uh, he said yeah I, i'm using it as an example of why you need to understand narrative structure, even if you don't care about uh, literature at all. He said, this is a practical application of humanities that, that, that I can use. And he said, it's great for parent night at the high school. So I can point to this and say, hey, parents, this is why your kids need to understand narrative structure. This is why they take humanities classes. And I was blown away. That wasn't at all anything I'd thought about, but I, I thought, what a cool use of, of this paper. Peer-reviewed scientific discourse is routinely viewed as a special form of communication, exempt from the parameters of narratives that humans inherently relate to. However, Ryan's findings support an alternative interpretation, namely that scientists can engage readers and increase uptake by incorporating narrative attributes into their writing styles. So we reached out to Ryan again just a few weeks ago to ask him what he thinks other researchers might take away from his approach to doing science, even if they're outside of his chosen fields of study. I've been thinking about this in preparation for talking to you. I went back and listened to the podcast this morning. 
And there's this design advice that one of the big tech companies gives, which is that no work is ever wasted. So I think that really applies here, where this is an example of one of the side channels along the main research path that you get to craft in academia. You you know you have a, a main body of research, and you and it leads from one thing to another, and usually those might be nonlinear, but you can sort of see where. Uh, one project leads to the next. And this project about you know, storytelling and science, science communication, is sort of a, a side channel along anything else that I or the other co-authors had embarked on. So to me, this is that example of the joy of tangents and getting to learn things that you didn't expect to learn and getting to do work that you didn't expect to do and applying a set of analytical techniques that you've maybe developed for one project, you know, maybe it's genetics or maybe it's counting snails on a rock. And here we get to sort of apply that set of analytical techniques to a completely different context and see what we get. And so that's been really fantastic. And this particular piece of work, uh, because it was one of these side channels, it's not something that I am an expert in. It's not something I've become an expert in. And in fact, because this was led by Annie Hillier, who was our master's student at the time, she's moved on to a career. She's now a city planner for the city of Bainbridge Island in Washington. So this hasn't become its own stream of research. But what it has done is it's stuck in the back of all of our heads as a piece of work that we learned a lot from, a set of techniques that we learned a lot from. We had never crowdsourced anything before. We've just learned a ton about uh, how to think about storytelling, how to think about science communication. And that's something I use every day. And so even though we haven't written another peer-reviewed paper about science communication since this one, it is something that I use every day in terms of thinking about how to communicate to different audiences, thinking about how to say what I mean in as straightforward a way as I can. Uh, and actually, Terry Klinger and I, along with one other co-author, uh, John Meyer, we're, we've now written a book for a popular audience uh, about the ecology of the West Coast, tide pools and the creatures that you'll see there and why they might live in one place and not in another place. And so that's all really exciting. We've, it, that we've taken those lessons that we've learned and applied them more broadly. And so in, in this case, it'll be for a, a sort of a guidebook for a popular audience. It'll be something that you get to you know, buy at the store and keep in your car for a road trip. Uh, and we're using some of those same techniques that we've thought about in this paper, this science communication paper that you're asking about. That was a remix and remaster of our 2017 discussion with Ryan Kelly about his article, Narrative Style Influences Citation Frequency in Climate Change Science, co-authored with Annie Hillier and Terry Klinger and published on December 15, 2016 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e100, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials we discussed during the episode. While parsing science is free to listen to, it's not free to make. And it's because of donations from listeners like you that we've been able to keep this show going now for 100 episodes. So if you like what you've been hearing and have the means to do so, then consider throwing some of your hard-earned cash towards future episodes at parsingscience.org support. Or, if you can't do so at the moment, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It's a great way not only for others to learn about the show, but also a great way to help spread the work of the scientist on it. Next time in episode 101, 
we talk with Aline Aid about her research demonstrating that electricity can be harvested from 5G networks, bringing to life Nikola Tesla's dream of wireless electric transmission. All the antennas scavenge all the energy from all direction and focuses it to one point on the other side of the lens, and that point is where the rectifier is. That's where the DC power is being formed. We hope that you will join us again 